I still have like three sentences. Are you still recording? <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. This will okay. go on the bloopers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This will go on the Patreon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Welcome to Keeping Cup. I'm Ariana. I'm a professional cellist, yoga enthusiast, and I love doing impersonations of my friends. On this podcast, you'll hear candid discussions about what it's like to work in the classical music industry, as well as the ins and outs of maintaining a varied and balanced lifestyle. I'll also bring guests on to talk about their distinctive areas of expertise. I hope these little nuggets will brighten your day, and maybe you'll even learn something. Let's get into it. Today, I bring to you the revered, the extraordinary, the one and only violist Jacob Schack. A tenured member of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, Jacob has had a unique trajectory that got him where he is today. He studied at Harvard, have you heard of it? And then pursued music in grad school at Juilliard. Jacob played an integral role in my Juilliard experience, especially in regards to my practice time or lack thereof, (laughs) because he was always hanging out in my practice room. My ride or die, we rode the subway together most mornings to school. He is one of my absolute favorite people, and I laugh with him probably more than anyone else. (laughs) Very accurate. We're going to get into it today and discuss his experiences at Harvard and Juilliard and how he survived and thrived. Welcome, Sir Jacob. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I am doing, I am doing well under the circumstances. Yes. As you know. <laughs> what, I, what they are. Yes, I do know. Yes, I am doing well. How was your day today? My day today, it's been fairly run of the mill. I had a meeting this morning for one of the committees that I serve on in my orchestra. A Zoom meeting. A Zoom meeting, of course, yes. We're socially distancing and being responsible. Good. And I did a workout in my living room. I've carved out a workout space. Good for you. And uh, had some lunch. Here we are. Clearly thriving. Thriving. Uh, Thriving as best as I can. Great. Well, I'm so glad to have you on my podcast. You are my second guest. It's an honor and a privilege. For me as well. And humbling. Humble bragging. Yes. (laughs) You will be humble bragging after my appearance that I appeared on it. Absolutely. And I hope that you will as well. I will. Okay, good. I absolutely will. All right. So let's get into it. You grew up in a town very close to Boston. Is that correct? It is. And what was your musical life like in high school? Like, were you super serious about music and what, what you know, extracurricular music activities did you participate in? I was very serious about music in high school. I was very lucky in that I, I went to a boarding school called Phillips Academy in Andover, which is the town where I grew up. So I, I lived at home, but I, I went to this amazing school and the school had 
more music and art opportunities than most colleges. So I, I really was lucky that I got to go there. And um, so, yeah, so I, I participated in orchestra, um, you know, we had a full symphony orchestra and then a chamber orchestra. I did chamber music. I took, I didn't take lessons there, but I took lessons um, at New England Conservatory in the prep program. Nice, weekly, weekly lessons. Weekly lessons. And I also did youth orchestra and chamber music there as well, every Saturday. So that's kind of like a weekend activity. And yeah, the music department at, at Andover was a very um, tight knit and supportive community. I basically like when classes would end every every day, I would just, there was a music building called Graves Hall. And I would literally just go there and like camp out there for the entire afternoon, like do my homework there, practice. I was best friends with the, receptionist in the office so I would like hang out with her and um yeah it was a really it was a nice um kind of refuge from the other aspects of of school and kind of um yeah I feel like I that's where I really started to like fall in love with music and playing music with other people sounds like you were fully immersed in music life definitely yes yes was it like a choice for you in high school were you trying to decide what to do in college between music and pursuing academia or did you know that you wanted to go study academia when I was making the decisions about where to apply to college I I was very confused and unsure of both of my desires for my own life and also of my ability. And I really didn't have like a clear sense of what I was capable of or, or where I kind of fit in, in the music world. So I, I applied to a whole range of schools, um, both for music and for academics and a lot of double degree programs. And part of that was because my parents who are not musicians, no one else in my family is a musician. Um, they're, you know, they are very practical people and they're kind of condition for me for applying for music schools or music programs uh, was that if I wanted to get an undergrad degree in music, I would have to also get study something else as a way to keep myself well-rounded, not just for job prospects later on, but, but just for, it was more for my own like development as a person. And they really insisted on that. And I resented it at the time, but I am grateful for it now, for sure. So when I was applying, I I applied to a range of programs, did a lot of um, auditions at conservatories and applied to regular colleges too. Um, and then 
when all the decisions kind of like came back, I was shocked that I had gotten in to everywhere I applied. I'm not shocked. I was absolutely shocked. And I think my parents were shocked as well. And the decision process was pretty difficult, but I just felt like the opportunity to go to Harvard was not one that I I could pass up, really. And not just because of the name of the school, which obviously like is a name, but when I you know, when when I went to go visit the school after I'd gotten in for their accepted students weekend, I just felt a real like sense of community and pride and um, especially in the music department, I felt like it was pretty similar to my high school experience in that there was a very like tight knit community of very serious musicians um, who kind of stuck together and um, but they were also in the same boat where they studied other things besides music because Harvard doesn't have a music performance degree. So I felt like I would be, I wouldn't be alone in um, wanting to pursue a career as a musician while also studying something else. So that was kind of what pushed me over the edge into deciding to go to Harvard. Thank you for the, the background info. So then you get to Harvard, what did you major in there? So I majored, I ended up majoring in comparative study of religion, which I kind of came to in a roundabout way. I, I, I was very interested, and I still am very interested in politics and government. And when I first started, I, I sort of thought I wanted to major in government. I took a few government classes my freshman year and the first half of my sophomore year and decided that department wasn't really for me. It was It's a very big department at Harvard and kind of impersonal. And you don't get very good advising. And it just seemed like people who studied that were not very happy. So I decided to go a slightly different route. And I studied, I ended up studying religion, but I focused on um, Christianity and politics, which kind of fused my two interests um, together. And it's a, it was a much smaller department. There were only, I think, like five or six people in my class who majored in that out of a class of 1,600. 1600. So that was a community in and of itself. And, you know, I took a seminar my junior year where it was just me and one other person. And we just, like it was just like a conversation every week. And I really enjoyed those kinds of experiences um, where it was very like, yeah, intimate and uh, yeah, just really high quality teaching obviously, but just like very full access to, to that rather than sitting in a big like 150 person lecture on intro to government. I was not super interested in that. So yeah. That's how I decided on that. And I took a lot of, um, 
I think I came one class shy of being an English minor and also a, a one class shy of being a music minor as well. I didn't get a minor, but yeah. Well, look at you, overachiever. <laughs> Meanwhile, while you're taking all these classes and which I assume were fairly difficult and demanding as one might expect, um, you were also very involved with the music department. I was. For all four years. Can you talk about that a little bit and what you enjoyed? Yes. So the music department at Harvard, beyond just like taking classes through through that department, there are a whole bunch of ensembles. And so I, I did orchestra for four years, which was a kind of the way I made most of my friends my first year. Um, Cause it is very much a, like a social, a social thing there. Uh, you know, there are orchestra parties and there's like initiations and um, your first week of your freshman year after you audition and, and get in, like upperclassmen come and what's called they dorm storm. So they like come <clears throat> like banging on your door, your dorm room door to like tell you that you've gotten into the orchestra. And yeah, so that it, it was a really like fun community of people and made me feel comfortable in the music uh, scene at Harvard, like right off the bat. And I bet those people are really cool because they're also all studying their, their own interesting things, right? Like they have yeah. diverse and varied interests in addition to having the music thing. Totally. The music community definitely like binds a whole bunch of, different people together and people that I probably would not ever have met otherwise in my experience there if I hadn't done orchestra. So I did, yep, I did orchestra for four years. Um, I did chamber music for four years <clears throat> and luck and chamber music at Harvard is an academic class actually. So um, they, we have, we had coaches from the Boston trio and the Borromeo quartet who are great. And so it was, it was, it was, I just felt so lucky because we were getting the kind of like the kind of coaching that people at conservatories get while not being at a conservatory. So it was right. The best of both worlds. Totally. And beyond that, I, I also played in a string, a conductorless string chamber orchestra called the Brattle street chamber players, which was also a really kind of a more of a social um thing as well like brattle parties were lit infamous and the most of those people were people i knew from other things in the music scene at harvard but just kind of a, a nice group and very high quality music making always so it was overall a very good and um fulfilling four years of music surprisingly um didn't yo-yo ma go to harvard he did yes he did shout out to yo-yo shout out to yo-yo he's listening <laughs> i'm sure he is yeah he is <laughs> if he's not someone needs to send this episode to yo-yo ma he was the first subscriber to keeping cup so yeah definitely yeah congrats <laughs> on that <laughs> so was there a turning point for you while you were at Harvard that kind of made you 
decide to pursue music in graduate school or did you leave the option open when you were applying to school for undergrad that oh maybe I'll decide to go and get a music degree for my master's and how did that come about for you? Yeah I didn't I definitely when I was applying to undergrad did not know whether I wanted to pursue music professionally or even go to grad school for it. I definitely had no idea about that yet. Um, but I I did, I think it was sort of like, so my freshman and junior years of college, I participated in the New York String Orchestra Seminar, which is like a 10-day orchestra program in New York, um, where there's kids from all over the country and different music schools. And um, especially when I did that my freshman year, I was still like, I was a baby and I didn't know what I wanted and that was like just such a such an inspiring experience for me that that kind of like gave me a push in the music direction just like being around so many kids my age that I knew some I knew from before and some I had never met but just being kind of like immersed in it for 10 days in a row, I didn't get tired of it. So I I just kind of like signal to myself that like, oh, maybe this is something, A, that I'm good enough to do professionally, perhaps, or, and B, something that I want, might want to do professionally. So it was kind of like my freshman year, I kind of was like, well, first I had the thought, maybe I'll transfer to a conservatory and, I brought that idea up to my parents and that was not taken well. (laughs) So I did not end up transferring and uh, they kind of gave me the support that I needed to kind of tell myself that I could balance it all. And I could, I could accomplish what I wanted to accomplish without like limiting myself. And I did that. So they were right, even though it was difficult at the time, but I did accomplish what I set out to, so. Took the world by storm. Hmm. Okay, so then you make your way to the Juilliard School. Ah, yes, that lovely. The famous. (laughs) Wonderful place. (laughs) What a place. What a place. So I started at Juilliard a year after you. Yes. And we didn't didn't really know each other at that point yet. Um, Well. When you started at Juilliard. When I started, no, we did not. Right. Yeah. We met like right before I started. Yes. The summer before. Okay. So I was not privy to your first year. (laughs) No. At Juilliard. So what was that like for you? Was that a, I mean, that's quite a transition. Those are two very different environments. Yes. Going to New York City, Uh big music school surrounded by a bunch of musicians. Just get into that a little bit. Okay. So when I was applying to grad schools I went around and had lessons with some teachers that I was interested in and you know they say when you're choosing a music school the teacher is the most important thing and I had some I had a lesson with Heidi Castleman and one also with Misha Amory who in like the fall of my senior year of college, uh, when I was kind of thinking about where I wanted to apply. And I just fell in love with both of them. And I, I, 
it they really kind of provide an amazing balance between Misha is an amazing performer and he's he's the violist of the Brentano string quartet which has an incredible one of the most successful American quartets around right now um and he's just an a dynamite musician and performer um but is also extremely intellectual and um actually he went to Yale for his undergrad so he was kind of familiar with like the kind of experience that I had in my undergrad and Heidi who is a legend in the viola world and can really like transform your playing for the better in like a matter of weeks I felt like um, and so I kind of when I met both of them for the first time I I felt like that was like a combination that I would really respond well to and I was lucky enough to get accepted to their studio and study with both of them for my masters so that was the main reason I chose to go to Juilliard where were the teachers um and the added bonus of of New York City I I have always been in love with New York City and being able to live there even just for a couple of years was an amazing experience and there's nowhere else like it and if i could move back today i would <laughs> so yeah so th those things made the experience worth it there were aspects of juilliard of course that as you know that are less than stellar um and we can get into those if you want but um yeah the the transition from from a school on a large campus with hundreds of buildings to a one building prison. <laughs> it is kind of like a prison. It feels like a prison at times. Yeah. It's a high security for sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank God for that. Yeah, that was an interesting transition, but the the city and the teachers made it worth it and meeting you, of course. Well, I was very glad to come in to my first year at Juilliard um, knowing you because it was just the best. <laughs> so profound. <laughs> it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was. It really was simultaneously. Yeah, it was. I will say, obviously, everyone at Juilliard is very talented and there's amazing teachers, but I feel like the violists at Juilliard are like legends the teachers for sure but i feel like just the viola students are just really is one of the stronger departments i agree i think yeah and usually that's not the case with violas it's more often than not <laughs> am i allowed to say that <laughs> yes you are insert viola joke the truth. here yes <laughs> Yeah. I can say that because all my friends are violists. That's true. And violists are also the most humble and best people in the world. Especially you, so humble. Right, I am just the most humble person in the world, so. Love it. Okay, so those are the things that you loved about Juilliard, I guess. <laughs> Do you have any favorite musical experiences from your two years at Juilliard? I do. I was lucky enough to play 
for orchestra um, in Carnegie Hall twice during my two years at Juilliard. And both of them were really fun concerts. One of them was with David Zinman. My first year, um, we played Ein Heldenleben and Shostakovich Cello Concerto with James Kim, who is amazing. Uh, and I got to sit on the first stand with Matt Littman, who is a amazing violist. And it was just a really fun and difficult and gratifying experience to play there. And then my second year for Carnegie, I was the principal of my section, which was very stressful, um, but also very fun. And in that concert, we played an overture by Schumann that I'm now forgetting the name of, and Berg, three pieces for orchestra, and an arrangement of selections from the Ring Cycle by Alan Gilbert, who was also conducting. And he is a very demanding uh, person to play under, especially in a student context. But one of the things that made that orchestra cycle very special for me was that, so the way he likes to set up the orchestra, he has first violins on the outside, then violas where the second violins usually sit, and then cellos, and then second violins on the outside. And so I was principal and I got to sit next to Jesse Fellows, who is also one of our dearest friends and sitting next to her for that cycle kind of was a hoot and um it it kept me on my toes <laughs> but also kept me sane uh, within the stress of that very difficult program so that those were really really memorable experiences i will not i will not forget those well i can attest to that wagner concert was amazing because i was in the audience and I loved it. And I especially loved, I mean, I was jealous that I wasn't in that concert cycle, but basically all of my friends were in the concert. So that was very fun for me to watch it. It was fun to play for sure. Well, now that we're in memory lane, <laughs> any favorite non-musical moments from, from your time? <laughs> well, yes. Um, our Thursday nights at El Portone are a highlight. El Portone, which is a divey little Mexican restaurant on Broadway near 125th Street. Down the street where I, from where I lived, it became a, a staple in our, in our lives. It is a staple. It's an institution. Oh, yeah. I mean, we went there so often that we we knew the waiter and she waitress and LD. she knew our orders yes she knew what we liked and if we didn't order them she'd be confused <laughs> very confused <laughs> very fun i remember one of my favorite days was when there was a big blizzard oh yes it was probably 2016 yes i think it was january 2016 yeah there was a huge blizzard it was like a polar vortex or something. I don't know. Big blizzard. I had never experienced a blizzard before. I was very confused. I didn't know what to expect. And everyone was like, it's fine. Just like make sure you have like big bottles of water. I'm like, I, I don't have those. <laughs> I, I was concerned. But it was very fun. 
we had basically had a big big day off and Jacob, you got to come hang out at my apartment and with some of our other friends and my roommates. Yes. That was a fun day. I was actually supposed to take a train to Boston that day to play a concert at my high school honoring a retiring music teacher, but my train ended up getting canceled because of the blizzard. So I was able to venture uptown to your house and that was a fun alternative, possibly more fun, De definitely more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry you couldn't play your concert, but that's okay. actually I'm very pleased with how it turned that was out. A fun, that was a fun day. We probably went to El Portone. We might have. Well, actually, that was a different time. There was a blizzard and everything was closed, but El Portone was not. So I went there with my roommates. We like sludged through the snow to get there. <laughs> that was a different time? Yeah, it was, I think it was just me and my two roommates, oh. Paul and Nick. Hello. I wasn't there. Shout out. <laughs> hey, Paul and Nick. Tag them. Yeah, I will. Okay. Can you tag people? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm still figuring this out. I'm new to yeah. this, okay, folks? <laughs> folks, anyone there? Hello? Hello. <laughs> Great. Okay, then moving on to, you know, we're sort of slowly getting closer and closer to the present time. We are, yes. Yes. So can you tell me about when you won your audition for the Baltimore Symphony? When was that and how did it feel? What was it like? Well, so I, so my audition for the Baltimore Symphony was in June of 2016, uh, about a month after I graduated from Juilliard, my master's. It's very good timing. It was oh. it was quite serendipitous timing. Um, <laughs> I had, you know, during everyone in their second year of their master's kind of like struggles with what to do next um and so i had been kind of mulling over my options the whole entire year and i had taken several auditions throughout my my grad school experience and done better at others and horribly at some and as it goes uh <clears throat> so at the time that i around when i graduated i did not really have any plans i i had auditioned for some more school as well for like not for doctorate programs but for like graduate diploma and uh at yale like the master i think it's called master of musical arts which is like a post masters masters <laughs> basically uh, any degree i wanted i i tried for but in the end i decided I had decided at that time to stay in New York and freelance and try to sub with some orchestras and keep taking some lessons and just kind of like figure, figure my life out. Uh, and I was, I was mentally all prepared to do that. And I was actually kind of excited to do that. I, as I mentioned before, I love New York and I was excited to keep living there and, uh, see what professional life as a New York freelancer was like. Um, but 
God had other plans. <laughs> and so after my graduation, I was actually at Spoleto, the music festival in South Carolina. And right from Spoleto, I went, I traveled to Baltimore and took the audition and was there for about four days. And I got a trial, which also was a, I don't think anyone really ever expects to like win an audition, but I, I definitely did not expect that to happen. And I was not really like ready for that to happen. But because the audition was in June and they only had like one or two more weeks of their classical season, my trial was not until September. So I kind of had a, uh, a summer of thinking about my trial and, uh, stressing about it and preparing for it. And you were somewhat homeless. I was somewhat homeless. It was a weird transition because I had moved all my stuff out of my apartment in New York into storage. And at that point, I had no idea where I was going to be moving next. Um, went to Baltimore, came back to New York, packed up all my stuff, moved it into storage, went home to Boston for like a week, went to Aspen for eight weeks for the summer, which was fun and, you know, just typical Aspen experience. And then after that, I came back to New York and lived in the living room of one Ariana Nelson. <laughs> on her couch for three weeks. It was the best three weeks of my life. It was a very fun three weeks. It was not a very comfortable three weeks. What? Sleeping on the couch for <laughs> a 6'2 male human being. Um, that couch but is very comfortable. That couch has okay. seen a lot. <laughs> uh, let's not go there. Anyway, so I stayed in New York for about three weeks. And then I traveled to Baltimore for my trial, my week-long trial, which, you know, was not as stressful as I anticipated it being. I had no idea what to expect, but everyone was extremely welcoming and supportive. And I really got to feel like I was part of the family of, the, of this orchestra. And it made me want the job even more than I did before. So I had my trial and I had to wait. There was another candidate also um, with a trial who had a trial the week after me. So I had to wait a week in between and it was probably the longest week of my life waiting for that decision. And then a week later, I got a call from the personnel manager saying that I had been offered the job. So that was exciting. And then a couple weeks later, my mom and I went to Baltimore to look for a place to live. And two weeks after that, I was moving in and starting my job. So I started in early November of 2016. My first day of work was election day 2016. So you can imagine how mixed the emotions were on that day. Wow. Well, that is a subject for another episode, probably. Yes, that's a different topic. Yeah, or a different <laughs> podcaster, maybe, even. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> well, that's very exciting. I It was a very exciting time, I'm sure, and it was for me as well, as your friend, because I wanted you to 
do well and succeed and you you have and i'm very happy for you you have as well thank you <laughs> um so you've been there for over three years yeah three and a half awesome and it's definitely been like some interesting few years for your orchestra discounting even what's going on right now oh yes it has so yes it has been an interesting few years a lot of orchestras have contentious relationships between uh their managements and the musicians And that's a dynamic I wasn't really familiar with at all before I joined this orchestra. It's not really something they teach you about in conservatory. And maybe, honestly, they probably should. It's kind of like a... It's important. Orchestral life skills, honestly. They don't teach you... Also, they only talk about the audition part and preparing for the audition and winning the job. That's just the beginning of it. They don't talk about the tenure process. They don't talk about the politics of being in a member of a section. Or how to, yeah, how to like behave once you've won the job. That's, you have to be able to be someone who people like to work with. A surprisingly large number of people screw that part up. Like they did the hard part. And then when they get into an orchestra, they, they say something that pisses someone off and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's also a topic for another time. But when I joined the orchestra, um, they had just signed a one-year contract extension because the orchestra was in the midst of a uh, search for a new CEO. So uh, the chairwoman of the board was acting as the interim CEO. So there was a one-year contract extension that year. and. Eventually, they hired a new CEO in, I believe, February 2018 or 17. I'm now forgetting who was the CEO of the Grand Rapids Symphony before. So um, a bit of a step up in terms of uh, size of the orchestra and kind of stature of the orchestra. And relations between us and our management kind of never really were great. And we eventually got, we went on a tour in August of 2018 to the UK and Ireland, which was a great tour. And we were very well received everywhere we performed. And it was the orchestra's first international tour in 13 years. And it was a really amazing thing to be a part of and very inspiring musically. But when we got back from that tour, the reality hit and our orchestra was in really bad financial shape at that point. And basically our contract expired about a week after the tour ended and negotiations had not, had not improved and had not, brought brought us any closer to an agreement. So that whole year, 2018-19, that season, we basically played that whole year without a contract. And we were playing and talking uh, throughout that whole year. The main conflicts being that our management wanted to cut our season by 12 weeks. So going from 52 weeks of paid work to 40 weeks. And we were fundamentally against that, both for the obvious reasons of that will cut our pay by 
I think around 20% was the pay cut proposed. And um, it's kind of a status symbol for orchestras to be 52 weeks. And not that it makes us any better, but it is a, our way of, of being kind of an elite category of orchestras. And it's a way to draw the best musicians to come audition for this orchestra. Uh, if we are paid year round and if we play year round, it's, it's an attractive thing for musicians who are getting into the orchestral field. And it's something that or that committees in the past fought very hard for. So we were not about to give it up. So that was the main sticking point. And, you know, tensions continue to rise over the, over the course of that season. And eventually in the spring of 2019, we were informed through a newspaper article that our summer concerts were getting canceled. And I learned this from a friend who texted me the article in the Baltimore Sun. Uh, our management did not even have the courtesy to tell us over email or anything uh, before this news went out to the public. So that was a gut punch. So that was at the end of May of 2019. And, and so we were locked out from the middle of June. So the end of our regular season until we reached a, another one-year agreement in around the end of September of 2019. So that summer, last summer, we were on the picket line a few days a week and in the blazing hot, humid Baltimore sun. And um, that was a, you know, it was a, it was a traumatic and very negative experience for the whole organization, staff included. Um, I don't want to discount their experiences at all, but um, I do think that it brought the musicians closer together for sure. And many times out there on the picket line, it, it was, it was kind of a feel good experience just to kind of like, go out there and yell and like, you know, it, it was a reminder that we're all in the same boat. We're all like here for each other, supporting each other. Um, and we're all fighting for what we think is right and what we deserve. So it wasn't all bad. It was really stressful during the time having to travel. I played with six different orchestras that summer and having to kind of like hustle to get work to make ends meet is is a struggle and and you were basically a freelance a freelance yeah. orchestral musician yeah. for the summer a forced freelancer and so yeah it's a it's a difficult life especially on we got three weeks notice before we were cut off so yeah no one who goes into an orchestral career thinks that they're gonna have to send desperate emails to like 50 people saying, hey, can I sub with you this summer? Here's what happened. It's not a great position to be in, but you know, you also get reminded through that, that all musicians are, are there for each other. And I met new people that I probably would not have still met to this day um, that summer. And I got to see friends. I visited Jesse in San Francisco and played with the San Francisco Symphony and it seems like these you orchestras know. were very 
very sympathetic to what was happening in Baltimore. And yeah, no one wants that to happen with their orchestra. And right. every orchestra has some strained relationships with management. So it's definitely relatable. It sounded like they welcomed you, you know, to help try to help people out. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And, and when, if slash when the roles are reversed, like we, and we have been there for other orchestras that are on strike or locked out. But again, it's just a reminder of like how tight knit the music world is. And it's really special. I think, I don't think any other industry is really like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was a, it was, a, that was one of the silver linings. It was a nice reminder of that. Well, the experience overall was very difficult and stressful. Um, but now we are, we're good. And we, um, you know, we settled, we got a one year contract and we're in the midst now of negotiating, hopefully a longer term contract starting in September. Um, COVID notwithstanding. Sure. And, um, you know, we, we hired Michael Kaiser, who is a consultant who used to be the CEO of the Kennedy Center. And he kind of specializes in turning around arts organizations and developing plans for them to succeed financially. So he's been kind of a godsend for the orchestra and has raised like over $10 million for us in just a few months. So things are looking up. We're lucky. Yeah, things are looking up. Well, I appreciate you giving us some insight into the nitty gritty. It's not all, I mean, once you win the job, it's not just sunshine and roses. Is that the phrase? Cupcakes and rainbows. Unicorns and... Elephants. Brownies? (laughs) Sparkles and butterflies. Glitter and caterpillars. Oh, yeah, okay. That's, I'll leave it there. Well, Jacob, one last question. Unless, do you have anything else uh, regarding this subject that you'd like to add? I don't think so. I think I've spoken enough. (laughs) Yeah, enough out of you. But I have one last question. It's kind of a selfish question because I need recommendations. Can you tell us what book you are reading right now and what show you are watching? Yes. It's really just for me. Okay. So I know what to read next. Okay. I am currently reading a book called The Answers, which I think I have told you about before. Um, Remind me. It is a novel by Catherine Lacey, and it's kind of a futuristic, postmodern vibe going with it. Um, It's about, and you know, honestly, there's no particular reason why I chose to start this book. It was just kind of in my pile of unread books and I just picked it randomly. No time like the present. Because I yes, start it, the pile. Yes, because I felt guilty that I had not read anything during the two months that we've been under lockdown. So yes, that's what I'm reading. It's good so far. I'm not I'm not like too far into it, but it's good. And I am currently watching several things. One of them is 90 Day Fiance before the 90 Days. Excellent. On TLC, on demand, which is trash, but it's incredible trash. And the other, one of the others is Normal People, which is on Hulu, which is based on a book called Normal People by Sally Rooney that I read last year, which is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And so they made it into a TV show. And that is also good. It's very 
Is it sad? No, it's not sad. It's, um, it's not like funny or light. It's kind of, it's a so little, it's, it's dark. dark. It's dark, but it's just very well. It's really like raw. It's, it's well acted. It's Irish. They love Irish accents. <gasps> oh, I love an Irish accent. Irish accent. Irish accent. Yes. Um, I recently watched the Michelle Obama documentary, which was great, called Becoming. I have a lot of work cut out for me. You do. With these shows. Add it to the list. There are a lot of shows out there, there are. right now. We are blessed with a cornucopia of shows. <laughs> a horn of plenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got a feast. <laughs> feast on the content. Yeah. Just dig in. Well, Jacob, it was such a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Thank you for having me. You are one of my favorite people to talk to. Ditto. I talk to you every day. <laughs> yes. <so. laughs> every single day. You can't get rid of me. But I think I learned I I learned uh, some new things about you today that I didn't know. You did? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Sweet. Thank you. Okay. So this was fun. Where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram. It's where I am probably most frequent. Jacob R. Shack on Instagram. And I'm also on Facebook and Snapchat and Gmail (laughs) and snail mail. Great. And (laughs) on the street. Oh. 12.01. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well... Again, such a pleasure. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Keeping Cup. Make sure to subscribe so that you get notified when new episodes are uploaded. Intro music is an original tune by my dad, Roger Nelson, performed by Roger on piano and my mom, Karen, on fiddle. Cover photography is by Natalie Gaynor.